Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is John McMahon, Visiting Assistant Professor of Political Science at Beloit College. I'm usually one of the hosts over at New Books and Global Ethics and Politics, but I'm here in New Books in Political Science for a bit of a special occasion and a bit of a different podcast. Uh, in this interview that you're about to hear, me and my U.S. federal government and politics class this fall semester here at Beloit College, interview Heath Brown, one of your regular hosts of New Books in Political Science, about his recent book, Immigrants and Electoral Politics, Nonprofit Organizing in a Time of Demographic Change, out this fall, 2016, from Cornell University Press. Because my students are making their own podcasts for their final projects for the semester, and because they've been listening to several New Books in Political Science podcasts previous episodes, Heath and I thought that it might be a nice experience both for my students to be able to get to engage in the process of actually making a podcast collaboratively before they complete these final projects, and also for Heath and I to get a chance to talk about uh, his new book. The conversation that follows covers the background conditions and political situation that face immigrants who wish to participate in politics and the nonprofit organizations that work with and on behalf of those immigrants. We also have this conversation in light of the recent election of Donald Trump with a number of questions from the students about uh, how Heath's work can inform what we might expect about immigrant politics and immigrant nonprofits in the coming years under the Trump administration. So we hope you enjoy this conversation between my class and Heath. And uh, I'd like to quickly thank the students you're about to hear from. So thank you, Lily, Ethan, Kelly, Tessa, Jesse, Mark, Zach, Natalie, and Will. So enjoy the conversation, and thank you for listening. We are now speaking with Keith Brown, Assistant Professor of Public Policy at John Jay College and the Graduate Center, City University of New York. He's the author of Immigrants in Electoral Politics, Nonprofit Organizing in a Time of Demographic Change, out in 2016 from Cornell University Press. Hello, Keith. Thank you for joining us. I couldn't be more thrilled to talk to you today, so thank you so much for having me. 
And it's not just Keith and I, it is also the U.S. Federal Government in Politics class uh, here at Beloit College. So hello, class, and hello, everybody. Hello. Hello. So the reason that we are doing this and doing this little bit different format for the New Books Network is that my students here in this class are in the midst of working on podcasts. Making Podcasts is their final project um, for this fall semester. And as part of that, we have listened to several new books in political science interviews that Keith Brown has done. And so when um, I tweeted at Keith that that was happening, he said, well, why don't you all interview me um, about my book that's coming out, which was a wonderful idea. And uh, a couple months later, here we are. So Keith, thank you for the idea, and thank you for agreeing yeah, to do this. Absolutely. It sounds so, so self-serving. When I hear it come back to me, but it, I can tell you it was not intended to be self-serving at all. Uh, I, I thought this was such a great idea. All right. Uh, so, Keith, I'm going to just kind of ask you to maybe talk a little bit about the origins of the book and why you wrote it and kind of give us a couple minutes sense of the overall stakes and implications of the project and then uh, turn it over to the students, uh, to the questions from the students. Absolutely. Uh, the, the motivation for this book, I think, is the motivation for a, a lot of scholarship, which was a, a very personal sense of wanting to connect to the place that I live. Uh, I grew up in New York City, but moved away for, oh, a number of years for graduate school and then for my first academic job. But in coming back to the New York area, I wanted to connect my research interests to uh, a research project that, that made sense to me. And this was a couple of years ago, and uh, what I wanted to do was to better understand uh, organizations, which is sort of my long-term academic project, but to understand them in the context of immigrants. Uh, immigrant politics is a, is a large field. Um, there's a lot of very good scholarship uh, that goes on. Uh, not just in the U.S., but also studying migration in other countries. But the way in which it's typically studied is on a very individual level, trying to understand how individual immigrants uh, vote or run for office or view politics. I wanted to take a much more institutional approach and in doing so understand organizations as intermediaries between individuals and political institutions. Um, that's how I started the project. Uh, this project started a couple of years ago and, and also started in the context of a previous uh, election. Um, uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, the, the findings of the project were going to mean even more uh, upon publication during the 2016 election, which, which I've just been very eager to talk to, to all of you about today. Um, but that gives some of the outlines of what the project's about. Okay, so we were wondering, what do you think is the biggest reason immigrants participate in politics to a lesser extent than non-immigrants? And then also, how can we change that? And what is the most important theme nonprofit organizations should express to get immigrants to participate more in politics? Okay, I'm going to try to go for at least one of those uh, questions, and I'll try to get to the other ones as I go. One of the reasons I think that immigrants tend not to participate very actively in politics is the same reason that many other Americans don't participate that much in politics, 
which is we don't have a very comprehensive way to socialize people into uh, political activities. Um, particularly today, civic education is, is so poor, uh, not just in schools, but, but really across the board. So whereas in the past, uh, learning about uh, what it means to be a citizen, what it, what it means to participate in politics, was, was seen as the job of all sorts of different institutions. The families provided one of those ways in. Uh, schools provided another way in. Uh, political parties uh, provided yet another. And, and in the past, immigrants were provided many more tools in. I think what we've seen over time is an erosion of that for many groups. And, and, and particularly within political parties, immigrants aren't nearly seen as the source of blocks of votes and as seen as a, a source to electoral victory as they were in the past. And, and for that reason, political parties have become much less interested in socializing immigrants into what they do, encouraging them to uh, join parties, vote for their candidates and so forth. And so I think that very um, uh, ambivalent political socialization, which has become a big part of American politics and you know, I think we see that this year where political socialization is happening in, happening in all sorts of strange places. And the way in which people learned about the 2016 election um, raises many, many questions about the authenticity of the information, um, the motivation behind the information being provided to people. And so I think that's that's at least one of the reasons why immigrants tend to participate somewhat less. I mean, the, the other thing is the more complicated answer, which is that immigrants come from very different political circumstances. And so the stories that are told within families about what it means to participate in politics is going to vary greatly from whether your, your country came, your, your people came to the country from Eastern Europe or Sub-Saharan Africa or Latin America or East Asia the political stories that are told about, you know, the home country uh, vary greatly and, and so often are not positive stories. You know, is, is not a story of, well, you know, my, my great uncle was, was the mayor of, of a town back, back in the home country. And that's why I'm going to run for mayor here in, in my town in the United States. The story is usually the exact opposite, which is my great uncle or great aunt was thrown in jail or protesting, or, or for doing even the most um, minor of political acts. And that's why my country left, and uh, people left to the country and came to this country. And so that also, I think, um, casts a real shadow on the political identity of immigrants within lots of different communities. So that's, that's two answers to at least the beginning of your question. All right, so there are many states that have relatively high immigrant population, uh, populations, but those immigrants aren't very well represented. Um, what can more uh, minorities be encouraged to participate, and what are the roles of the immigrants serving nonprofits here? Yeah, so, so I think that's, you know, that's the question that connects the, the previous question really to the book. Because what I think we've known very well from excellent scholarship by, by immigrant politics scholars in political science, but also in sociology and ethnic studies and all sorts of different fields, is, is we know this fact about participation, um, but we, we know much less about what will change that. 
And, and because we know the political parties are, are somewhat inactive recently in, in trying to energize immigrants, there is this new potential role for nonprofit organizations. And nonprofit organizations come in lots of different varieties. Uh, some of them are very interested in politics, but most, you know, the ones that you might be members of, I mean, I'm sure that you all have affiliations with some kind of nonprofit organization. And I would guess for most of those, those groups, politics is not what they think first and foremost about. So you might be part of an organization that's concerned with the environment or, or concerned with culture or concerned with athletics. And for those groups, finding a political role is, is often unclear. Now, for a, a group that, let's say, is a nonprofit organization that is interested in promoting, I don't know, physical fitness or local sports engagement, whether or not they participate in politics, I think, is inconsequential. But for nonprofits that represent immigrants, that, that know the people they serve are already at the margins of the society, uh, that because they're coming to them for health services or language services or educational services, they know they have these set of needs. I think that the, the, the demand for nonprofits to get involved in politics is different. And so it's so so for this reason, for a nonprofit that serves immigrants, I think they have to confront the reality that if they don't get involved in politics and they don't provide a number of different avenues in uh, mechanisms that that immigrants can get involved, including those immigrants that don't have voting rights. One of the things that I was very aware of in the book and wanted to make very clear is that voting is just one of the things that you can do. There's all sorts of, of um, maybe they're not legal immigrants, but immigrant communities that are they're here in all sorts of different statuses that still have political rights. Um, even the, the students that I have at the City University of New York, a large number of whom are undocumented, simply because they don't have politi- the political right to vote doesn't mean they, don't, they possess no political rights at all. And so nonprofit organizations that even serve communities that are largely um, here on visas, meaning that they don't have voting rights, or, or they're even undocumented, still have lots of ways to provide a political voice for the community. And so I think that the, one of the things that I was tr- interested in is figuring out those, you know, what is it that leads those organizations that probably understand intuitively that politics might matter but haven't yet figured out how to, how to fully engage and understand what factors are related to them getting much more involved than, than they currently are. Because I think the stakes of them remaining uh, disengaged are, are quite significant. Okay. Um, do you think interest groups and nonprofits need to modify or change to better represent immigrants? Yeah, so, so what you're, you're raising is this other category, which is you know, the interest group. Now, interest groups are nonprofit organizations. They're just a certain kind of nonprofit organization. So an interest group based on their, their design has politics as a part of their mission. So it's, it's, never, it's never unclear whether a, an interest group is going to uh, get involved in lobbying or get involved in elections and so forth. 
For nonprofit organizations that we call 501c3 nonprofits, those are the ones that I was just talking about. But your question has to do with the interest groups, and there are interest groups that are focused on immigrant issues. Um, there are some that are in Washington. Uh, that are, there are some that are based in state capitals. But the research shows that they're, they're small in number, and they're also small in resources. So as compared to other interests, the ones we all think about, uh, industry, for example, or professions, those, those areas typically have lots of interest groups, and they have lots of interest groups with lots of resources. The interest groups that represent immigrants tend to be small in number and also small in resources. So there's a couple of things to think about. So if you knew that, you know, what would you do? You know, what would you do in that circumstance? One of the things you could do is to increase the number of organizations that represent immigrants in Washington, let's say, the number of immigrant interest groups. Another thing you could do is to try to increase the resources of those immigrant interest groups that already exist. A third thing that you could do is, is what I essentially suggest in the book, which is to take organizations that aren't currently set up to look like interest groups and to provide them um, with a, a better way to get involved in politics. So I think that, you know, what I think in terms of the interests of immigrants would be best served if all three of those things happened. If there were more, if we had a much more robust system of pluralism in Washington that represent, represented the true diversity of interests in the country. And those countries, those uh, interest groups, in addition, were fully resourced so that they could do what they needed to do and didn't have to worry constantly about raising money. And then on top of that, you would have non-political uh, organizations, non-profit groups, that also saw a legal way for them to get involved in politics. If you wanted to see transformation in the way int- uh, immigrants were represented in, in U.S. politics, all three of those things happening would be a very good sign. Now, we can talk a little bit about why that might not happen, but I think that's one of the ways that I at least think about the different types of organizations that represent immigrants. What are the factors in influencing the constraints on the tactics that nonprofits can and cannot use? So one of the main ones is the fact that they are nonprofit organizations. The law a long time ago was set up to give those organizations that serve the public certain advantages. So we, we give incentives to people to give money to certain kinds of organizations hoping that they will do things that government currently doesn't do. So what we want in communities is the organizations to be formed to provide food to the hungry and to do all sorts of charitable acts. And and in return for that, they get a benefit, which is their donations are not uh, are not taxed in a certain way. Now, the, the, the penalty on that is that in return, they can't be explicitly political. So they have to act in a charitable way that's in the best interest of, of the society. They can't act in a truly partisan way as a result. So they're restricted from certain kinds of partisan activities. They can't endorse candidates because that would be viewed as a partisan strategy. 
they can't get involved directly in helping a political party because that would be seen as as partisan. What that really leaves is a, a variety of other tactics that are nonpartisan in nature, but still have a political dimension to them. Those are the tactics that I studied in the book. Those are the ones that I asked organizations about. Now, even though nonprofits have lots of different tactics that they can legally use, many of them are under-informed about the law. So when I did interviews with organizations, what many of them said to me was, we can't get involved in elections because we're going to lose our protected nonprofit status. And I often said to them, I understand you saying that, but, but that's not actually the law. The law says that as long as you do this in a nonpartisan way, you're allowed to do this. And what they often will say back to me in, in, in the process of doing the book, and many of them will say, uh, of course, that, that, that is the case. But even if we were allowed to do it, many in our community don't want us to do it that the idea of becoming politically active for some immigrant communities is, is simply uh, not on the agenda. So when I talk to, talk to the executive directors of organizations, many of them would say, we'd like to get involved in politics. We think it would be important for our community for us to be involved in politics. But when we talk to our advisory board, they say it's too risky. Um, the community doesn't want it or we don't have enough resources to do it, or you're going to have to give up other things in order to do it. And as a result, many immigrant organizations say, we'd like to get involved in elections, but we simply can't. That's the reason why I found 60% of the organizations in the survey that I did said that they didn't do anything related to politics, particularly electoral politics. I think it's for those three or four different reasons, combining limited resources, confusing uh, legal restraints, and then also the political identity and the level of political, what I call political efficacy of the community, makes a big difference. So um, as these minorities play larger roles in American political action and activism, how do you think these nonprofit organizations that represent them will evolve? Will, will they become dedicated political entities, or will they function solely as socioeconomic organizations? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And one of the things that, that we all know, you know about the demographic changes going on in this country. We read about it all the time. And it's going to happen differently in, in different parts of the country. But the, the, the state of, of uh, demographics suggests that there are going to be uh, communities that are now going to be making up 30, 40, maybe even 50 percent of, of the voting age population in a, in a precinct. That could have a radical change on, on politics, uh, a really major, major change. Now, one of the things that I was interested in the book is the difference between immigrant politics and the politics of specific immigrant communities. So one of the things you, you hear about during election is if immigrants all simply voted the same way, they would be this enormous block of voters and they would never be defeated. Now, that suggests that all immigrants share interests, that immigrants from Asia and Europe and the Middle East and Africa and Latin America 
all view politics in the same way. Now, now you guys are taking lots of classes, and I think you understand that that's a very naive view of the way most people view politics. Um, even in a given community, there are divisions within uh, ethnic groups such that it could be in the future, even though demographic patterns change, we'll see differences emerge, let's say, within the Latino community, where there will be different interests that, that will mean uniform voting blocks don't actually emerge. If that happens, the immigrant politics is going to be transformed because voters will be transformed. Now, that might not be a, a, a good thing for sort of a, a pan-immigrant movement, but I think any way to get more voters energized about expressing their political views even if they're in conflict with others that we think they must share views, is a good thing. So I think that this is something that's going to play out over the next couple of decades, and you're going to be witnessing. I guess, you know, so on a, on a personal level, what I want is, is every voter to vote in the way that they feel um, uh, best serves their interests and serves the community that they live in. If that means that, that large... Um, uh, pan-community pan uh, movements form, I think that's fine. But if voters cluster around certain issues in certain communities, as long as they're engaged, as long as they're participating, as long as they're voting, I think that we're in, we're in fine shape. The greatest worry I have is the reaction to the 2016 election, which some people I hear already have, which is politics is just not worth it. Um, I tried, you know, I got out there, but but what happened was not what I wanted. And I'm just, you know, politics maybe is just not my thing. That to me is the worst outcome and is particularly bad for immigrant communities. All right, so immigrants obviously play a big role in American politics. Um, however, after Trump's victory, do you think they'll have a harder time believing they have such a role? What was the last part of the question? Yeah, um, after Trump's victory, do you think immigrants will still believe that they play such a big role in politics? Yeah, I think that's sort of the point that I was just getting to, and I think if I can expand on that just a little bit, one of the things that we know about political behavior is that something like voting um, is habitual, is something that if you we can predict whether you're going to vote next year or the year after based on whether you voted this year. We're still not at a point where, where the vast majority of most communities turn out and vote. So first-time voters are, are the, you know, the, often the, the most risky voters that we have. I think a lot of, uh, a lot of the answer to your question is what we're going to see over the next couple of months. Some of it is going to come from the Trump administration and the decisions that he makes about governance, because decisions about governance are very different than decisions you make on the campaign trail. It's pretty easy to, to say almost anything. And, you know, if we've learned nothing else about the uh, politics, we've learned in 2016 that you can say almost anything when you're out on the campaign trail. Governing is very different. Uh, governing is much more difficult. And so, uh, what you do on a day-to-day -day basis related to appointing people to your government, related to policymaking, is, is a harder thing.
But because it's harder, the consequences are much more dramatic. So when uh, candidate Trump made statements about various communities, those those were, I think, damaging on, and personally damaging to, to a lot of people. But there's a difference between that and actually enacting laws that have quite uh, material uh, harm done on, on specific individuals. So we don't know if that's going to happen. We don't exactly know what the Trump agenda is going to be. But I think that the, the way in which immigrants respond to this election is going to have a lot to do with the, the actual day-to-day decisions that the Trump administration makes. On the other side, the response of Democrats is going to matter a lot. How they interpret the outcomes of, of this elector, election, how it affects their strategies in the future, is going to matter a lot. There were a large number of immigrant candidates who won. Uh, one in down uh, down ballot races across the country. Now, do the po- uh, political parties view that as a sign that immigrants should be um, uh, 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 they should be invited in the future much more to participate in politics? Do they take that as as the takeaway, or do they take the, uh, have a different takeaway where perhaps immigrants aren't as important to electoral victory? Therefore, they're not going to expend as much to try to get them into electoral politics. So I think that the answer to that question is is yet to be determined, but will be something that will play out on both sides of the aisle. Republicans have a part to play in this, as do Democrats. If the Trump administration takes some aggressive stance against immigrants or immigrants serving nonprofit organizations, how can these organizations respond? Yeah, this is this is where things get real tricky um, because some of the promises that were made. Um, it's it's hard to know how anyone is actually going to respond. One of the directions I think that you have for immigrants and immigrant organizations is to look to their localities and also to state uh, state politics. So in cities and, and states across the country, after the election, there have been a number of political figures who have uh, redoubled their commitment to providing a hospitable environment for immigrants. Now, those states sit at the, at a, within a federal system. As you know, you're taking a class in federalism. There are things that cities and states uh, can do, but they're constrained by what the federal government ultimately decides to do and how aggressive the federal government truly is. This comes down to resources. So the federal government may do something uh, like uh, retract the, the DACA, uh, the Deferred Action Program. They, they may take that away, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to put the enormous amounts of resources to doing things like building a wall between the U.S. and Mexico or, or hiring the vast number of new federal agents that would be needed to deport the large number of people that they're claiming that they, they may deport. So resources matter here, and for organizations that are that are concerned about what's going to happen over the next couple of years, I think what they first need to do is is really look at uh, what their localities and what their state government is in do is doing, and try to identify allies that they might have at the local level or at the state level that might provide uh, both support, but also a pretty a much clearer vision of what's to come. Um, 
you know, I don't have the access to know what's actually going to happen in government over the next couple of years. You guys probably don't know um, much, much more than I do about the, the, the actual governing decisions of, of the Trump administration. But there are people uh, in the know at the state level, uh, at the local level, powerful mayors, powerful governors. I think turning to those people to both get a idea of what, what is legally feasible but also what is likely to happen is a couple of the ways that I think you can respond. Um, do you believe that the current presidential election results might push immigrant-specific 501c3 groups to become more partisan than normally? Also, does it seem to make sense to you why 501c3 groups, which are seemingly more helpful interest groups, are more regulated than 501c4 groups, which are usually made out to be a way for donors to funnel Okay, that was about five very good, very complicated questions. And so um, let me try to work backwards through them. Uh, the, the issue of dark money organizations, which is what you're alluding to, is something that is a really, I think, very important thing and is an important issue to talk about not just for immigrants, uh, but, but for all sorts of communities that, that care about politics. The, 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 the so-called IRS scandal that happened during the Obama administration that happened sort of connected to the Tea Party movement, where allegations about political targeting uh, suggested that the IRS was was sort of playing games with with the 501c3 status and the 501c 501c4 status. Now those allegations never really turned into very much, and there were congressional investigations and so forth. I suspect that one of the things that's that's going to happen within Congress is they're going to reconsider all of the ways that the IRS. Uh, regulates organizations that may lead to the creation of some new categories or may lead to the change of some of the rules. But I think it would be surprising if a Republican-controlled government, which is what we have, doesn't spend some of its political capital taking a long uh, look at the, the IRS and how they're involved in politics and the outcome of that is is unlikely to lead to more transparency. Uh, I don't think that a, a more transparent uh, system of pluralism is what what most in Washington have in mind. But it is something that they they could do. You you could make organizations more transparent and require them to uh, to disclose all of their funders. We have such a, a long history of and and deference to individual freedom, that the idea that somebody would have to disclose, uh, would be uh, required to disclose where they give their money has always been viewed in, in very um, suspicious light. And, and I think that it's unlikely that Republican leaders are going to view transparency in a much different way. Now, how you respond to this as, a, as an immigrant community is then a little tricky. I mean, one way you do this is say, well, you know, if our opponents are, are using some of these lo- loopholes uh, to, to do politics, maybe we'll use the same loopholes. Um, I can see that I can see that inclination. Um, but I also think that 
there's a, uh, a stronger case made for principled politics and for uh, trying to um, do the politics that you believe are right and, and to go beyond what the rules require you to adhere to a set of principles about transparency that, that isn't what the IRS requires, but is really what you think is in the best interest of your community. Now, for some communities, they may say, well, you know, let's, if, this is, if these are the rules, let's play by the rules and do whatever we can do to win. I, I can see that happening. I think it's a, it's a much, um, you know, I want to live in a country where rather than sort of adhering to just the, the, the details of some regulation, uh, politics is, is um, governed by a set of principles that may be much more stringent than what the law requires. And, and I think that would allow for uh, some addressing of, of these rules. Now, maybe that's naive. You know, maybe that's you know, the way that you, you often lose political, uh, political contests because the other side you know, may not be playing according to the same rules. But, but at least in an aspirational sense, I hope that if there's a reexamination of issues of the rules governing nonprofit organizations, the rules governing financial contributions, that they're, they're motivated by uh, principles of transparency and openness rather than simple political expediency. So that's an answer to five very complicated questions it, with, with one answer that, that may have not done it full justice, but, but at least gets, gets something out there. Uh, so you've already touched on this a little bit, um, but you know, obviously in the week and a half since the election, there's been a market uptick in attacks and harassment against people of color. And so uh, in Chapter 6 of your book, you talked about uh, political venues and where nonprofits can focus advocacy at the national, state, and local level. So we were wondering, um, where do you think these nonprofits will focus their scope? Yeah, you know, since obviously so much has already happened against people of color in the week and a half. Yeah, and in, in writing that chapter, which is about um, essentially about hate crime, and I think you're right that we don't know the full extent of it. There have been some, some truly unfortunate crimes committed after the election. In writing the book, what I wanted to do was to, to link that to the activities of organizations and to see if that had, had an effect. And what I feel like I, I discovered in that was you know, some good news and some bad news. You know, I thought the bad news that I discovered was that immigrant organizations located in these traditionalistic states are much less likely to leave their community to get involved in politics. They're much more likely to focus on their locality than to see a way through to uh, voicing uh, politics at the state level. That, to me, is problematic because increasingly immigrants are living in those very traditionalistic states. That may have not have been the case 100 years ago, where immigrants were clustered in a different set of states, like the state of New York, and, and much of the country didn't have very large immigration. But that's just not the case today. Uh, as, as you read about in the book, there is dramatic increase in immigration in states like North Carolina and Tennessee and Georgia and across the South and Midwest. These are states that don't have long histories of, um, of immigration and as a result don't necessarily have a place for immigrants in their politics. 
the fact that that immigrants seem to immigrant organizations seem to understand that and focus mainly on their locality is was something that um, that that I was disappointed to see. On the other hand, the re, the response that I was able to measure uh, that that immigrant organizations had to the occurrence of a hate crime in their community to me uh, was a was a silver lining. Because what I was most worried about was that the occurrence of a hate crime was going to have a demobilizing effect on organizations. And what I would see is organizations um, basically opt out of politics and, and, and view a, a crime committed on someone in their community as, as, a, as, a, as a crime that they couldn't respond to. The fact that I was able to discover that in response to a hate crime, they responded by getting much more involved in, in, the, in the politics of their locality. To me, it was a real positive thing. And it's something that I think I would try to use to answer your question, which is uh, the, the natural response to, to terrible, act, terrible occurrences in one's life is, is, to, is, is to demobilize, is to, to get much less involved. I think if, if there's a, a stronger argument to be made that the response should be twice as much effort, um, twice as much engagement in politics, I think if we see that in response to some of these, these terrible hate crimes, we will, we will have had a, a positive outcome to a, a real bad situation. Um, and that can come in lots of different forms. Um, I think this, you're going to have to also cross this with demographic change. So as communities grow in number, you may see a, a rise in, in hate crime, but, but also the potential that the community becomes large enough to support much more aggressive political response, both to the, the, the most, the worst kinds of political hate, but also just the daily environment that, that often is created that makes life for immigrants um, unlivable. And, and that may, may never turn into an actual crime, but, but could be just the inhospitability, uh, inhospitability that, that might make people just not willing to remain in the country. Um, I think if that happened, um, then, then this election would, would be a, a truly disastrous one. For this reason, I think the response of organizations matters a lot. They're the ones that have the wherewithal to provide a voice for people that might not have that opportunity on their own. And so, so you know, my hope is that um, there are very few hate crimes in the future. But if there are, that organizations see it as a responsibility to respond in a, a clear and demonstrable way, like the Sikh American community did in Wisconsin during the past election. I think if that's a model, um, immigrant communities uh, we'll, we'll have a much better future. So uh, with Trump about to take office, do you think nonprofits like KCCP, which you talked about in chapter four, will opt to become more active in terms of having more of a political voice? And uh, how would the model developed in the book help answer that question? Yeah, I, I hope so. Um, I think a lot of this comes to the kind of coalition building that I talked about in the book. Uh, there are a lot of nonprofit organizations just just in the just in the community that you live in. There's probably more nonprofit organizations than you can even count. Working independently of each other, 
I think that they struggle because for most organizations, they don't have the time or the resources to devote to hiring um, somebody to be in charge of advocacy. Uh, they don't have the, the, the ability to pull together um, a strategy for politics. But I think in coalition, even the smallest of nonprofit has, has, the, has an opening to, to get involved. Now, in some parts of the country, like in New York City, there, is a, there are strong and, and active and well-supported immigrant coalitions. The same could be said of Chicago and parts of Florida. If you had an effective immigrant coalition in every state, and in every large city, even organizations that, that might be hesitant to get involved in politics would have the opportunity to in an efficient and, and way that, that didn't mean they'd have to change what they do on a daily basis. So I think one of the response that I, I would hope for after this election is, is for national leaders, state leaders, and local leaders to ask that question. Do we have a coalition in place that can provide a, a forum for all sorts of types of organizations to work together? Um, that can be done in a nonpartisan way. That can be done with the support of effective coalitions in, in places like New York City and Chicago. If that was one of the outcomes of the election, you know, if we knew two years from now or four years from now, that immigrants all across the country had coalitions that, that supported the organizations that they are served by. If we knew that, I think that there would be the potential for much more mobilization than we've seen in the past. That opens up, a, I think, a, a really very interesting research design. Um, I would love to go back in the field in four years from now using that kind of data to try to figure out if there is a, a strong connection between communities that have formed immigrant coalitions and much more robust political participation by non-political immigrant groups. Um, I think that this would be something that would be very interesting to study. More important than it being interesting to study, I think it would be hugely important for all segments of the society. Uh, this is not a partisan issue. This has to do with, with all, uh, uh, all residents of the country, all citizens in the country, having ways to participate in politics. That is so core to, uh, to a healthy democracy that I think it should be supported in, from philanthropies. Uh, I think government should support this. I think political parties should support this, even if they're mobilizing people that might not ultimately come out and support their parties. Now, again... That may be naive to think that any political party is going to spend any money getting people to, to turn out to vote that might not support them. I understand that. But I do think that if they could see beyond their, their somewhat narrow partisan interests, they would see the, the civic value in a, in a fully engaged society. I think if that happens to a greater extent, uh, our country will be uh, a healthy democracy rather than an unhealthy democracy. All right, thank you, Heath. Now, as we're running out of time here, I'm going to jump in and sorry to cut off the rest of you here to kind of ask you the traditional uh, New Books Network last question, and that is what kind of projects are you working on now? 
Yeah, so I'm working on a project now that looks at a different kind of uh, mobilization among immigrants. One of the um, cliches that we that we often say about immigrants is that 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 immigrants are entrepreneurs, right? Immigrants start businesses, and in New York City, there is this long tradition of immigrants arriving in the country and starting the corner business. And so, uh, you know, there there are all sorts of community. The, the sort of the the very famous Greek deli is is ba- in New York is based on the idea that Greek. Uh, immigrants to New York City found a, a sector of the economy that they could they could start and they can get involved with. Um, that's that's sort of the past, um, and and I'm very interested in in uh, studying the way that immigrant organizations provide immigrants paths into the new economy, uh, provide ways into becoming innovators in in cities and states across the country. We also have this cliche about Silicon Valley that, you know, every company in Silicon Valley has a you know, variety of immigrants that are working. You know, I think that's an that's an exaggeration of the, the actual story about how immigrants live. And I think that we, we don't have enough, particularly in some communities of immigrants, uh, uh, immigrant students going into uh, certain kinds of fields and certain kinds of jobs. And I'm very interested in seeing how organizations can get involved in, in providing path, pathways in to those kinds of fields and those kinds of jobs. It grows out of this, this current project, which looked at how they provided a way to mobilize the community to get involved in politics, but rather in, than in politics, get in, involved in new parts of the economy. And so that's something that I'm working on right now. All right. Thank you, Heath. Thank you, everybody else. Thank you. And it was great to talk to you. Thanks for doing this, Heath. Absolutely my pleasure. I'd be glad to come back next year at the same time. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.